Welcome. This is Anastasia Glova bringing you the Cato Daily Podcast. Be sure to log on to our website, www.cato.org, for a full archive of our podcast as well as many other audio offerings. Africa is one of the most protectionist regions in the world, with high tariff and non-tariff barriers that prevent Africa from reaping the benefits of free trade. It is hypocritical for African leaders to call for greater access to global markets while rejecting trade openness at home. At a forum on Friday, Andrew Mitchell, member of parliament and shadow secretary of state for international development, proposed a pan-African free trade agreement to liberalize intra-African trade. In today's podcast, he answers some questions about his plan. Can you explain your support for a pan-African trading area? Yes, it's really born out of the current state of the WTO negotiations. It doesn't run counter to the WTO negotiations. But it's trying to explain that there is a huge amount of trading that could take place between countries in Africa, south-south trade, if you like. And we need to facilitate that. There are all sorts of blockages. Some of them are tariff blockages. Some of them are physical blockages. But what I'm doing today is making the case for a free trade area across Africa, which would allow a lot of intra-African trade to take place and which would help to lift Africa out of the poverty in which so many of its people now live. How much of African trade is currently comprised of trade with other African countries? It's absolutely tiny. Only 10% of African trade is with other African countries. But if you compare that to North America, for example, 40% of North American trade is with other North American countries. And in Western Europe, 68% of trade is with other Western European nations. So there is a huge potential. Africa's got a very long way to catch up with anything like those figures. Politicians have an active interest in collecting tariff revenues, so how do you propose this trade liberalization be implemented if the African political elites are opposed? Well, it's true that a certain amount of revenue is collected through customs dues at borders and so forth, and indeed money is collected by bribery and corruption in moving goods within countries as well as across borders. But we need to make the point, if the ideas which I've set out today were to be implemented in any form at all, the increase in the levels of trade and the ability, therefore, to tax that would be such as to dwarf the level of dues that are received at the moment. And one of the things that we do in Britain and other countries do too, and the World Bank does, is to try and build up civil society which helps to hold politicians to account who run those countries, but also to build up the internal mechanisms by which a state functions, one of which, of course, is the collection of revenue, having a proper tax base. And we're using aid money from around the world in Africa to try and build those sort of systems so that countries can collect the tax which they should collect, but all too often today are not collecting. And how would you tackle some of the more informal trade barriers, such as a woeful lack of infrastructure and roads and the kind of widespread corruption that so often prevents very ordinary transactions from taking place? It's true at two levels, really. The first is that I think we all recognize the importance of building up the infrastructure. Indeed, there were some questions at the Cato Institute meeting, which I spoke at specifically about the building of infrastructure. And if you can't get your goods out of the country to market because the roads don't exist or they go the wrong way or it takes you many, many hours to travel a relatively small distance, your goods will be uncompetitive. So building infrastructure is very important in aid terms. Health and education are the aid expenditures which obviously attract the highest amount of comment and support. But equally, as the Africa Commission report published in Britain made clear, 
building up infrastructure is very important as well. And clearly there are ways in which you can do it through tolls and so forth, where in some elements they can be self-financing. And the World Bank are very, very good at these sort of projects, understand them well and understand the benefit which they can provide when they are built. So what kind of support is there for such a plan in the British government and in the larger development community? Well, I think there's a recognition, it's a footnote in the Africa Commission report, but I think there's a recognition that boosting intra-African trade is incredibly important. So I think it's accepted as a good thing, but it's difficult. People don't envisage that all the African leaders tomorrow are going to sign up to such an arrangement, and they're not. But nevertheless, the drift in ideas in this direction is important and it's gaining support and some countries in Africa understand very clearly why this would be a benefit and the number who understand that will grow in the future and we need to support that process and therefore even if today it doesn't look like anything other than a good idea and it is a good idea nevertheless over future months and years I think it will gather support and I hope it will gather speed and incentive to enact it. You're clear about your opposition to top-down approaches to development. So what do you make of microfinance? Oh, microfinance is a wonderful thing. I've seen it particularly in Bangladesh, but it's also been practiced in Africa now. It's a really good way of harnessing the entrepreneurialism that exists in all of us. It's a wonderful liberator, particularly for women in Africa and across the developing world. It's a huge enabler of talent and the ability of ordinary people to lift themselves by their own endeavours out of poverty. And I'm absolutely delighted that Professor Yunus, the man who set up the Grameen Bank, probably the biggest exponent in the world of microfinance, has just been awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. If you enjoyed this programme, consider subscribing to Cato Audio, a dynamic 60-minute monthly recording that brings you inside the Cato Institute for highlights from exceptional, one-of-a-kind lectures and events on key issues of the day presented by nationally known scholars, authors, and political leaders. Cato Audio is available on our website as well as on iTunes and audible.com.